ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Well, hello, and welcome to another podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Uh, I'm Simon, and this guy here is Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Simon. What a day! What kind of a day? <laughs> what, have, have you had an interesting? Have you had an interesting day in any way, shape, or form? Do you know what it What's has been? On? It has been rather interesting. My social media has somewhat exploded in the last two or three two or three hours, and yes, what a day! Uh, right, what I've a been... day! <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Enjoy uh, yourself now. Yes. It's later than you think. That's um, now. I saw. I saw you tweeting about that over the weekend. Um, anyway, uh, if you're wondering what we're talking about, um, it's been announced that uh, Matt and I are going back to do a drive time show on Greatest Hits Radio starting March the fifteenth from four p.m. That's four p.m. That's a proper drive. PM. Yes, it 4 is four p.m. until seven p.m. Monday to Friday. Wow, all three hours. Goodness me! How about that? how about those apples? Yes, I like I those apples a lot. So it's all very, it's all very exciting, and then you can talk about Liverpool. Yes, and <laughs> well, all the time. It, it's worth saying that since I left Radio Two, Liverpool have won the Champions League and the Premier League. So mm. now that I'm back on national radio, wait for yes. Liverpool season to go through the toilet. It's all going to go wrong. Well, we're from already. Now. We're already in the toilet. So, you know, with a miserable team oh, it's uh, not who, as bad who as I predict now will win nothing and play really dull. Right, well, I, and, and in which case, I will, I will predict that Spurs will win something this season. I think no, you will no, win no, 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 some no. silverware this season, definitely. We could, I think the hours of radio that we have to now reflect on this, <laughs> yes! on Greatest Hits Radio, new hot rocking drive time. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. And now, yourself. 20 you're minutes still in of the pink. Spurs chat. Yes. And me singing songs. Yeah. Wow. Are we allowed to do that on the podcast, by the way? Are you singing? Is that is that allowed? Are we okay to get away uh, with that? We're just breaking all the rules. Um, also, what I enjoyed posting was the Banana Boat song, that, uh, the Harry Belafonte, but as it appears in Beetlejuice, the movie, which is yeah, just very, yeah. very funny. Yeah, so. no, it's great. It's great. Loads so it's going to be, it's going to be uh, very, very uh, exciting. I yes, think. it is. I have had people asking me whether this podcast is going to continue, and I hope it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, let's make an on-air production decision. We let's discuss this. <laughs> And producer Ben certainly is not involved, no, even no, though he'll probably butt in in just a moment. 
Um, and I can say that, as far as I'm concerned, this podcast will continue. Here, here. That's good. That's yes. Good. Are you yes. up for that? I'm definitely up for that. Yeah, brilliant. And well, could, well, not I least because there's some sense. great books out there that I want to talk about. So, yeah, brilliant. Excellent. Well, uh, I, we, and c- before we go any further, Pi Minister, the official sponsor oh, of this podcast. Oh, yes. Who, who I have to say, get it on the cheap. They just send us some pies. <laughs> um, it's very good, but it, I do have that kind of lockdown feel that, you know, in terms of, you know, that who ate all the pies. Well, uh, we did. I did, yeah. Well, I had, so they sent six pies before the weekend, uh, two of which yes. are veggie pies. So my wife, um, my wife had two yeah. of those veggie pies. They were um, good. They, jackfruit ones. The jackfruit them. ones, yes. Well, I didn't touch them because they're veggie. Um, but I had the steak and ale and the the chicken. What was it? Chicken curry kind of thing. Uh, very, yeah, very, very nice. nice. Very nice. Yes, they are our official pie okay. suppliers. Uh, yes, that's right. But we, I think, we probably need more. Yes, more pies, please, Pie Minister. If you're going to be our official suppliers. I'm getting messages here from Janine. Janine Cummins, who's our author. I don't, does that mean she's there? I'm, I'm hoping she hello. is. Hi, Simon. Hi, Matt. I didn't know if you could hear me. I thought I was, it's all new to me. So I'm glad I got through. Wow. Brilliant. Where are you? I'm in New York and it is snowing and snowing and snowing. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, thanks very much for joining us. Secondly, do you have a favorite pie? <laughs> oh, my God. That's a really hard question. Key lime, blueberry, pumpkin. That's such no, an American I don't answer. have a favorite. It is. Janine has joined us not just to talk about uh, pies, but Janine Cummings' book out in paperback certainly is American Dirt. It's already one of the best-selling books of last year in hardback. Now it's out in paperback, and Matt is going to describe the cover that he has in front of him. Yes, so the cover that I've got is a very fetching um, blue color that is dominating the the page and uh remi- it's, it's sort of like a, a, a dappled sky or a or the kind of blue Good, you see nice. in a yeah. in a swimming pool or maybe in 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 Liverpool's current away kit that's that's what i'm thinking of in that blue <laughs> color um but then um, <laughs> american dirt in in white big white block letters uh with janine Cummins at the bottom in black and and and, and in the center is a sort of gold leaf um, um, it's a sort of representation of a bird, I'm going to say. That doesn't sound particularly uh, incisive, but it's yes, it's basically a bird. What is, what is yes. that bird, Janine? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny how many people have asked me about the cover when I had nothing to do with the cover, but I do think it's very beautiful. I think the hardcover and the paperback that the UK publisher has come up with are stunning. And I do like how they go together with the sort of themes of the book you know it's it felt sort of evocative to me when I first saw it of the feeling that you get when you stand at the border between the U.S. and Mexico and nowadays there is you know along much of that border there there are these very heavy man-made barriers and yet um, there's something quite thrilling every time you go there to observe how nature just sort of mocks the efforts that we make to separate this land that is one big landmass. So you always see birds perched atop that fence, you know, deciding for themselves which way they want to fly that day. Or if you go 
to El Parque de la Amistad, for example, on the West Coast, um, which separates San Diego County in the United States from Tijuana to the South. And the ocean, the fence tapers right into the ocean and you just watch mm. the waves wash back and forth between these slats. And it's there's something very powerful about that. And I thought that the sky blue and the bird sort of evoked that feeling for me. What is the American dirt of the title? And tell us how you came to write this story. Yeah, so I think, again, one of the things that I liked about that title was that it wasn't so hard and fast. It didn't mean exactly one thing. I think it's quite flexible in its multiple meanings. And, you know, it means lots of different things. And I like the way that the reader can sort of bring their own baggage and project whatever it is they think it means at the beginning of the book. And then that idea may begin to morph as they move through the novel that, that I, you know, several different notions occurred to me when I thought of that title. And it was, you know, that we had this sort of dirty little secret in this country for a very long time that we purport to be the nation of the Statue of Liberty, you know, send us your, your poor and oppressed. And yet the way that we treat migrants in this country, um, particularly migrants, you know, who may happen to be Latino or Muslim, um, we treat them like dirt, you know? And so there was that idea, but also I wanted to get across the, the, the notion that, you know, America means more than just the United States. And there are whole, you know, many countries and cultures who are part of the Americas. And yet we have sort of co-opted that word so that now it, we've hijacked the cultural connotations of what it means when we say America around the world. Um, in the hardcover edition of the book, there was in the end papers on the inside cover, a map of, you know, North America and Central America and it was a borderless map that we had commissioned just just for that, just for those end papers. And it really illustrates, I feel, you know, how arbitrary these lines are that we draw to separate nations and peoples when you see that it's one big landmass and you see that the journey of their their trek that they make along, you know, their route as migrants um, is it's all one big it's all one big place, you know, that's yeah. separated by these man-made structures. So I felt like um, the whole book takes place on American dirt, in my mind, because Mexico is part of the Americas. Okay. Introduce us to um, the lives of Lydia and Luca. So there's a mother and son relationship at the heart of this story. I mean, there's so many things to, to you know, to touch on, but just introduce us to uh, Lydia and Luca and the journey which we follow. Yeah, so on page one, it's not giving anything away to say that there is a horrific act of violence, um, a massacre that happens in their lives, and they have no choice, Lydia and Luca, but to run. Pretty much everyone they love in the world is decimated at once, and they are in grave danger, and they have to run for their lives. So the story of this novel um, is the story of their journey and their survival. And they're really falling all at once out of a sort of 
really comfortable middle-class existence into uh, the lives of migrants and, and becoming invisible people. And so it's the story of their journey. Again, this is, this is, you know, it's like the first reel of the movie. It's the first chapter of the book. So I think it's okay to talk about it. But that, uh, the, the slaughter that, that happens in the opening pages of the book of Lydia uh, and Luca's family is so, I mean, on the one hand, I admit it was thrilling. It's also devastating and appalling uh, to read. And mm-hmm. it did occur to me, you know, almost by page four, how on earth do you begin to get your head into a space whereby you can write about such devastation so early in the story? Well, this was the third draft of this novel that I wrote. So it's not as though this um, structure occurred to me immediately. I this, I spent five years writing this book. Uh, the first three, very heavy on research. You know, I traveled to Mexico. I visited migrant shelters and orphanages. And I volunteered at a desayunador, which is a soup kitchen for migrants. Um, and I talked to a lot of people on the ground who had really good insight into the sort of real conditions that migrants were facing. I met many migrants who were undertaking this journey. And so all of that experience informed the way the book developed. But it may also be true that my own life experiences, my own experiences of trauma and grief informed how the book developed sort of equally. You know, unfortunately, I'm a person who has experienced really significant trauma in my life. I've written about it before. I have lost family members to murder. And at the time that I wrote this book, I was also grieving the passing of my father. And so, um, you know, I, it was not difficult for me to imagine that kind of trauma and pain because it's familiar. It is. A, it's, it's an astonishing opening chapter, Janine. And uh, you, you said just now that you that you'd been working on this book for a number of years, and this was not sort of the first draft. Was it? Was it always going to start with that attack, with that breathtaking attack, with Lydia and Luca yeah. cowering, cowering in the in the in the bathroom? Was that always going to be how the book started? No, not at all. In fact, Lydia didn't even exist in the first two drafts of this book. And I know a lot of writers, when they talk about drafts, what they mean is it's kind of the same book that they just go back and revise and clean up. I threw away two entire drafts of this book that were like 80,000 words wholesale into the garbage. I did that twice. Um, And then the thing that happened that changed everything for me was my dad's passing. He He died a week before the 2016 presidential election. It was a really, really ugly moment in this country. I felt, you know, with the, with my dad died at the dinner table. It was a very sudden, um, unexpected death. And, you know, it felt like such a dark moment in, in this country and in my life. I felt like sort of all the decency went out of the world at once. And it it hit me really hard. And, uh, you know, I was almost 80,000 words into the second draft when that happened. And I knew it wasn't working. I was frustrated by it, but I didn't know how to fix it. And then after my dad died, I, um, 
about four months later, I didn't write for four months. I didn't, I couldn't even read during that time. It was just, I was sort of incapacitated for a while. And then when I began to emerge from it, I, I dragged my laptop into bed with me one day and I wrote that opening scene. And I didn't even know at the time that I was starting over or that this would be the opening scene of the book. But I think I knew as soon as it was on the page that, you know, that it was the book that I had been resisting for three and a half years mm. and that it was the book my dad would be proud of and that this was the direction I needed to, needed to take it. You know, I had been trying to write a book that was set in the borderlands. The, the initial draft was not set in Mexico. Um, I resisted that narrative for a very long time. Um, and then when I think as often happens in our lives, when you, when you have a, a grief, a really significant grief, sometimes it can function like a springboard and all my resistance just fell away. I had a very painful new perspective on what really mattered to me and what didn't matter. And this was the book I was going to write. And as we uh, join Lydia and Luca on the, the migrant journey to escape uh, the slaughter that's, that's happened at home, what's interesting, I think, based on what you've just said, Janine, is that it's like they don't have time to grieve. They're, they're, yeah. they're, having to, they're having to survive. They're having to make all the decisions. But really, the kind of grief that, that they've gone through would be you know, and will be life-changing and devastating. But because they have to move, because they're in fear of their lives, they don't have time to do that. Yeah. And again, this is one of those things that I am a believer that you know, writers should be able to and must be able to imagine themselves into anyone's circumstances and that you don't need to be someone who has experienced exactly the thing you're writing about in order to write compellingly about it. But sometimes it helps. And, you know, I've had this experience in my life as well. I, when I was 16, I had two family members who were murdered and um, by by strangers. And the fallout in my family was such that um, we did not immediately have time to grieve. We had to put that grief away for quite some time while we navigated the horror of the aftermath of that murder. And um, it was a very informative um, experience in my life. And I think I brought a lot of that to bear on the writing of this book. Um, it quickly becomes clear, um, Janine, in the book that uh, this attack on uh, Lydia and Luca's family has been ordered by um, the head of a cartel who, coincidentally, um, uh, Lydia has, has met, uh, not knowing who he is. I, I want to talk to you about um, the, the the role of of uh, and and th this has been prompted by a, an article that uh, Lydia's husband has written about this uh, cartel leader. I want to talk about those those cartel leaders and they, they clearly they they make these very public displays of violence and we know the reasons why they're doing it. They're doing doing it to emphasise to to the people that uh, resistance against us is is useless because look at what happens to people who uh, don't do as we tell them to and. They, the, it seems their entire MO is about we want as many people as possible to know about how bad we are. 
It seems odd, therefore, that they would be so thin-skinned about the coverage that they get by journalists. Surely, any journalist writing about how um, how bloodthirsty, how dreadful these people are, that, that would be welcomed by those cartels. And yet we all know that journalists come in for a huge amount of, um, well, that they are targeted by these cartels. I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about those, about, about this sort of duality that these cartels have of um, at one point wanting as many people to, as possible to know about how dreadful they are, but also wanting to silence journalists. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. No one I've talked to before now has framed it in that way. And I think it's it's really insightful of you to to dig in like that. I, I mean, I think the difference is, you know, unfortunately, there are some statistics in the in the book that are true. And this is one of them that, you know, in during the writing of the book, Mexico was the most dangerous country in the world to be a journalist. And that I think it was tied one year with Syria. Um, it's it remains true that it is incredibly, incredibly dangerous to be a, a, a reporter in Mexico who is writing about the cartels. And I think the distinction is probably that they only want the kind of coverage that they want. <laughs> and they don't want anyone operating beyond the permission that they grant. Um, so if a, if a reporter goes too far in telling the truth about, you know, one of these cartels, um, as many of the courageous Mexican journalists are doing, um, they're getting murdered at incredibly high rates. Was there any voice at all in your head, Janine, saying or urging caution as you... Uh, clearly, you're writing a piece of fiction, but you know it's based in the reality um, of many people's experience. Did you have any voices in your head going, mm, "Maybe I should not go here"? No, not not the ones I think you're referring to. At least I I never felt unsafe in Mexico. You know, it, it should be noted that Mexico is not a lawless place. It's, you know, the murder rate in Mexico is lower than the murder rate in Memphis, Tennessee, for example. Um, the problem, I think, is that when you do find yourself on the wrong side of a violent person in Mexico, there's no recourse. It, you know, those these men have impunity for all intents and purposes. So um, that is the challenge. But I think for me, going into the writing of this book, I took all due caution in conducting my research and in traveling around Mexico, I was very careful. But I also felt um, relatively protected by my anonymity. I'm not, I'm a novelist. And up until this book came out, I was a relatively unknown novelist. You know, this was my fourth book. Um, I had never been published outside the United States before. My previous books were relatively well received, but they were modestly published. And um, I knew that no one knew who I was or really cared about what I was writing at the time. Um, and as you say, the fact that it's fiction and there is this cartel is a fictional cartel that I made up. Um, I think that all of that stuff combines to 
mean that I was never really in any danger. So having des- described, you know, your relative anonymity, uh, Janine, that's certainly gone now. Uh, your book was picked by Oprah for, you know, which is the, the ultimate for any author. Uh, and so all of a sudden your book goes stratospheric, uh, which must have been head spinning. Um, then there was uh, a kickback against that and 82 writers asked her to reconsider. Uh, and it and it became a a big controversy. What have you made of uh, of the dispute that happened around that? And sort of, I don't know. The, can you just explain what is what 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 the <laughs> argument was about? Those who, who why did they ask Oprah to reconsider in the first place? Oh gosh, I like how many days do you have to talk about this? Because it really is oh, such a, a complicated. <laughs> It's such a multi-layered, you know, what happened was a very complex set of circumstances. And some of what spawned the controversy was legitimate. And then a lot of it also, I would say, was not legitimate. Um, And to sort of unbraid all those strands and explain them piece by piece would, I think, is going to take me the rest of my life to try to figure it all out. But Um, In the sort of most superficial way, I think it's fair to say that um, Latino writers in the publishing industry in this country have been historically overlooked, undervalued, um, underpaid, and um, that remains true. And there was also a perception of me that I think was not accurate as being someone who was looking to exploit that inequity. Um, I happen to be Puerto Rican and Irish. I don't think that's necessarily relevant, but it certainly became a focal point of the controversy, determining whether or not my Latino heritage was valid, Uh, you know, so I got to watch my ethnicity and identity adjudicated on Twitter. Um, I don't recommend that to anyone. It was a very painful, awful thing to endure. Um, And it's no one's business what my identity is. It's personal. It's private. It's personal. It's genuine. And um, and also it it has very little to do with the book that I wrote, Um, you know, but I think that the conditions were exactly right for a controversy like this to happen because the inequities are real. They exist. And there was this tremendous backlog of frustration and anger. Um, And I think my face was just the sort of vehicle for that anger. Mm. We've talked about uh, some of the issues uh, around this on the podcast before. Obviously, you weren't you weren't on it, but um, uh, John Boyne, when he was on uh, with us uh, last time, we talked then about an author's right, almost as it seems to me, to be able to write any character they wish from any perspective that they wish. However, that if you know, for example, some people have written children's books from a perspective of a table. 
you know, and no one can claim to have been at table. So therefore, anyway, so <laughs> so it is it is very complex. But he said, if you are going to write, he was talking specifically about writing from the point of view of a transgender character. So he was saying, mm. if you're going to do that, and he decided he decided not to. There was going to all kinds of issues swirling around. But he said, if you're going to, you yeah. just have to put in the extra work and make sure it's extra especially good. However, it falls down. To, you know, it's almost impossible to have the publishing industry, it seems to me, without the basic starting yeah. position of any author can write any character that they wish. There are certain responsibilities that come with that. But that right. a lot of people who, yes. who, who took exception to your book had clearly not read it, it seemed to me. I think that's fair to say. And I, I also believe that, you know, when I characterized my kind of roundup of what I can say about this in a, in a short format um, as being very superficial, that's true, because I, I don't think that that's actually the hill that most people are going to die on. You know, I, do, I think when you really dig into it, most people agree with what you just said and what, with what John Boyne said previously on your podcast, that a, a writer, a fiction writer must have absolute liberty to write whatever story moves in her heart and um, and to be sure that you have a responsibility to yourself and to your reader to, to do that carefully. If you're gonna cross cultural boundaries or gender boundaries and write about a character who's very different from you, um, you need to be really careful about how you do it. And I think that when you really dig in and begin talking about these things, these things most people agree with that. Um, and so then you get to like the second layer of the controversy, which are also like, then we get to the third and fourth layer, like we can keep going. Um, but yeah, I, I think absolutely I agree with that. We have to have that liberty. And it's a liberty that right now I think is at risk. I think lots of editors um, are nervous. I think lots of writers are censoring themselves because they, I don't want to go through what I just went through. Um, and, you know, it's problematic. But I do see a future uh, where we resolve this issue and also make a lot more room at the table for these writers who have been, you know, disillusioned up to now and, and, and make sure that we solve these problems of inequity so that we don't have a situation where we are just ripe for another controversy like this to swirl around a writer who is just, at the end of the day, making up a story because that's her job. But also, and it's important to say this, that you're making up this story after having done a huge amount of research into the into the topic that you're writing about. And I, I do want to talk, you have sort of, sort of touched on um, the degree of research you did in Mexico. I just want to talk a, a little about um, the research you did into the into when Lydia and Luca are are crossing the border into the United States, and that the, there are small yeah. things there that I, I I mean that leapt off the page to me, including the bit where you 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 mentioned they uh, the the coyotes who are the, who are the people who will escort them across the the, the border. Um, they give them minced garlic mm -hmm. to put on their shoes because it keeps the rattlesnakes away. Um, which I I've no idea whether yeah. that works or not, but it, but obviously I'm. I'm 
it's, uh, my my guess is it's not something you would have made up. It's something that's true. Just talk to us a little about uh, about the research you did specifically into those those crossings from from Mexico into the U.S. Yeah. So I mean, that was actually I have to say one of my favorite parts of the book to write because it's so steeped in the landscape and it's beautiful there. The Sonoran Desert is incredibly harsh and terrifying, but it's also breathtakingly beautiful. And I went, I went there. I spent a week in the Sonoran Desert when I was writing that part of the book. And um, there were days when I drove out deep into the desert and, you know, for hours I drove down the Ruby Road and, um, and I am, you know, I live on the East Coast and I, of the United States and I, have always lived in cities. I I think that this was probably the furthest I've ever been from other humans in my life. You know, you drive, you can drive through the desert for an hour without seeing another car. Um, and I remember getting out of my rental car at some, some place in the Pajarito Mountains, a couple of miles north of the border. And I had a trunk full of water and a somewhat working cell phone. I think I had one bar of a signal out there. And and it was terrifying to be in that place, um, even with a car and plenty of water and a phone, because it just felt so remote and so isolated. And I remember standing out there and listening to the wind whip by me and 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 being like feeling the terror in my body of what it might be like to have one of my children there with me and only the water that we could carry. And I still, I have goosebumps just saying that out loud because it was so frightening to even consider. And I know that people are making this journey every single day and that they're dying out there. Um, which is why, you know, ultimately why I wanted to write this book because I felt like that was a truth that we were doing a really bad job paying attention to in this country. Um, so, you know, a lot of the little details of the landscape and uh, what things look like and smell like and feel like out there in the desert were um, directly attributable to me going there and being in that place. And the landscape really did uh, steep into those parts of the book, but also talking to so many migrants who have made that crossing and them you know, those those guys being the ones to give me the tips about the, the garlic on the on the boots and stuff like that. Janine, just finally, I just wonder whether uh, your experience of, uh, of writing this book, the reaction to the book, on the one hand, one of the best selling books of 2020 being picked by Oprah, then the, the fuss and bother, which you've just been uh, talking about. How does it make you approach your next book, which I'm sure is underway or you've got some thoughts or whatever. Does it make you think I'm just going to write about a picnic in, in Central Park and <laughs> that's it. Uh, and it's going to be very straightforward and nope. it's not going to be controversial. <laughs> or do you want to go back and get your, do you want to get your, your nails dirty again? Look, I do not like conflict. I've never been someone, I'm not ever going to look to be provocative, but it's also true that the stories I care about tend to be stories with, a, at their core, some injustice. And, you know, I have a problem with the idea that more and more, it seems like we are suggesting that 
the responsibility and the onus for writing about injustice should be on people of color. Uh, typically, it's not the people of color who are necessarily perpetrating the injustice. It's, you know, in this country, uh, social justice has a racial, heavily, is heavily racial. Um, and so I think if you're a person who cares about social justice and racial justice, um, as I do, I feel like this is my wheelhouse. This is what I'm supposed to be doing as a writer, writing the stories I care about. Um, and I am sure that the book that I write next is going to piss people off. <laughs> and I took a long time to kind of get get where I needed to be in my own mind so that I would feel free to write that book without censoring myself. And I think I'm finally there. I'm beginning to work on the next book. Um, and I feel good about it. I feel strong in my own voice. And in some ways, I feel sort of like maybe I'm the most liberated writer there is in this country right now because I've already been through it. So I'm like, it's, it can't be that bad again. It was bad. So what more can they throw at me? Like I may as well write the book I want to write because people who hate me are going to hate me and I will survive. Uh, Janine Cummings' book is called American Dirt. Uh, very shortly, you'll be able to get her Q&A as well. But for the moment, uh, Janine, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and I look forward to uh, reading uh, the next book and finding <laughs> out quite who's going to be annoyed uh, by what you've done. Uh, Janine, th thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have many episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.